will definitely not shut up and dribble. The champ is here. I must be the greatest. The champ is here. I'm going to continue to stand with the people. The champ is here. I will I'm not, not, not lose. lose. I'm a bad man. I took up the world. Yes. Welcome. 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 You could have been anywhere in the world, but you're here with we. My name is EJ, and I got my man. MH. Is the DB of the show, and we are Black in Sports, giving a voice to the culture that won't shut up and dribble. Here interviewing the best professionals in the game and in the boardroom, covering it all, laughing at it all, while providing a platform to be heard. So, you know what we do around this time. We have to bring our guests in. So, Kansas City, 100 most influential African-American, Citizen of the Year award winner, and let's get him He's been inducted, all right, to the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame. He is the president of the Negro League Museum. Please, please clap it up for Bob Kendrick. Let's go. Let's go. A.K.A. Prez. Let's go. <laughs> hey, so how we start our show, Bob, is we always start our show with a shoot-your-shot moment. And this is where we ask our guests for a specific time where you went for it all, bet on yourself. Uh, win or lose, right? So, or win or lesson. We'll call it win or lesson, but you shot your shot. And we like a specific moment, not, you know, uh, the, the easy way out saying that you always shoot your shot. You got a story for us? Yeah, no, I, I think for me, the biggest shot that I took was the shot that brought me back to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. That was 11 years ago when I had to make a decision on whether or not I was going to come back and join an organization that I loved after I had actually initially been passed up for the opportunity the first time around. Oh, and uh, yeah, and, and I think a lot of people guys thought it was an easy decision for me to come back because they know how much this museum is in my blood. It's part of my soul, part of my being. But it was one of the most difficult decisions I've ever had to make in my professional life. and. It wasn't just solely because I had been passed up the first time. The museum was going through a very challenging stage at that point in time. It, it was it was really on the decline from a financial standpoint. And what I had to grapple with beyond the, I guess, the personal and emotional side of being passed up, and I missed my one vote. I lost a split board vote. Uh, way back in, I think it was 2009. And, uh, but what really I had to kind of contemplate and wrap my arms around was the fear factor of what if you can't turn it around? Mm. See, I already had, I guess, for lack of a better term, a legacy attached to my friend Buck O'Neill for all those years prior to me leaving. That was in place. People remembered the things that we had done uh, collaboratively. And if you come back and it fails, all that is forgotten. Right. You know, it's one of those things that people don't ever remember the guy that really messed it up. They remember the guy that was there when the ship sank. <laughs> and, and everybody would have assuredly said, Man, Bob, let the museum fail. Mm -hmm. And so you're grappling with your own legacy and the fear of failure. And at some point, though, and I tell people all the time, guys, and you know this as well as anyone, 
you're never supposed to make these kinds of career decisions with your heart. They're supposed to be made with your head, rational, well thought out, conceived decisions. Well, if I told you that I made the decision to come back with anything other than my heart, I'd be lying to you because every time I tried to be rational, Buckle Neal jumped on the other shoulder and said, son, come on back home. And at some point, I knew I had to come back. I had to shoot that shot. Whether or not I failed or not, I could not go down not trying. And I made the decision to come back. That was 11 years ago. We haven't looked back since. Literally hit the ground running. And it's been a it's been a truly a blessing. It really has. And I tell people all the time, I feel like old Buck, the late great Buck O'Neill, has been looking over my shoulder and guiding my footsteps the entire time. Because I, I'm not that smart. I, I am not that smart. You know, I'll be the first to admit. And it just seems like every crazy idea, every whim that we come up with, it just seems to work. And I think there might just be a little bit of divine intervention somewhere in there. And that's okay. That's okay. We got a video of the great Goose Tatum at the museum. And, and Goose, one of the funniest guys ever. Goose, if you haven't heard that name before, Goose Tatum was a star basketball player for the Harlem Globetrotters, is in the Basketball Hall of Fame, but was also a slick fielding first baseman for the Indianapolis Clowns. Oh. And, and in the video, guys, he gets the home plate and he okay. calls time. And he drops down on his knees and starts, and starts to pray. You know, and it's okay to ask for some help sometimes. <laughs> and, and I think that's been the case with me and this museum. And so I think that's probably the time that I shot, took that shot. You know, you take that shot and, and you just live with whether or not you make that shot or not. But, that's you know, I, I, I'm so glad I took the shot. It, like I said, it's been a tremendous blessing for me, this work that I do. And we're having a really good time trying to keep a, a museum afloat. There it is. Yeah, that, that's that's awesome because a lot of times leaders, uh, I've been to a million leader kind of talks, and they don't ever say, <laughs> admit the fears that they have when they're exactly. you know, successful. But exactly. to admit that, that's, that's yeah. unbelievable. Mr. Kendrick, where did your love for sports start? Oh, and, and as a kid in Crawfordville, Georgia. Crawfordville, Georgia is east of Atlanta, west of Augusta. Uh, all of about 500 people. I saw that. And, yeah, no, it's a <laughs> tiny, tiny, tiny town there. And But I fell in love with sports early on. You know, I'm the youngest of six boys. So all of my older brothers, you know, participated in sports. My father was a big sports guy. He loved basketball, football, baseball. He introduced me to baseball at an early age. So we, the town was too small to field a, a high school baseball team. So we had track and basketball. And anyone who knows me knows that I do not believe in running just for the sake of running. So track was out. Yeah, yeah they, they ruled that one out right away. And so I played, I actually played high school basketball, which is what got me out to this part of the country. And I was very fortunate to get a basketball scholarship, small college basketball scholarship to then Park College, now Park University, NAIA level basketball. So yeah. I literally chased a basketball from Crawfordville, Georgia to Parkville, Missouri, which is suburban Kansas City. 
And that was in 1980 when I got out here and I've been here ever since. Uh, and so, but no, baseball was in my blood early on. I've been a baseball fan since I can remember. You know, I taught myself how to read a box score out of the old Atlanta Journal-Constitution mm. and uh, just quickly fell in love with this game. And Henry Aaron, the late, great Henry Aaron, my all-time favorite baseball player, my childhood idol, man. I just wanted to do everything like Henry Aaron. Yeah, yeah. and every time we were on the, the playground, I was always Henry Aaron. I know that the other kids wanted to be Henry Aaron sometimes, but they couldn't. <laughs> but no, I'm Henry. <laughs> now, I, I heard a story from one of your other interviews about when he he, he broke the record, 715, mm -hmm. and when he was rounding the bases, you rounded the bases in the house. You hit the couch, you hit <laughs> mom's TV, you hit her lounge, Cheryl's home plate. Did you get in trouble for that? I, I didn't hear the second part. Did you get in trouble for hitting the couches like that? No, no. You know, my mother was like, what are you doing in there? You know, because I'm jumping for joy, you know, as almost a 12-year-old kid. Because I knew, I think I knew, even at 12, I had witnessed history being made. And for me, it is still the greatest sports accomplishment in my lifetime, you know, to have witnessed that. You know, I know older people will say the moment that perhaps Jackie Robinson walked out on the field as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers or Joe Lewis, or, you know, for those old enough to remember Jesse Owens racing in the face uh, of communism. But for me, the greatest sports moment in my lifetime was Henry Aaron's breaking of Ruth's record, a black man in the deep South. And, and even at almost 12 years old, I can remember how polarizing it was in my little town because Crawfordville was still very much segregated in its own way. The old white man sat on one side of, of the street, the old black man sat on the other side. And there was this polarization about Aaron breaking this almost mythical like star right. record in Ruth and right. people weren't feeling that. Right. Yet around on the black corner, everybody's excited. You know, Hank Aaron about to break this record. This is going to be amazing. And, and I remember, you know, just kind of being in the midst of that and how special that accomplishment was. And for me to have the opportunity to share that story, uh, MH, that you just talked about me circling the bases of my parents' living room, to share that story with him. It, it's just one of the great memories that I have of being there at the museum and walking my childhood idol through the museum. It was the only time that I've ever been starstruck by anyone. Yeah, Henry Aaron. And we've had American presidents, guys. We've <laughs> had first ladies of these United States of America, all kinds of dignitaries and athletes and entertainers. And as I always say, with no disrespect to any of them, <laughs> They're not Henry Aaron, man. They are they not Henry Aaron in the eyes, mind, and heart of this kid from Crawfordville, Georgia. And then to boot, I got to sit down with him, and we ate barbecue ribs, Kansas City barbecue Ooh, ribs together. And, and and so I can tell you now, it doesn't get much better than that for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's Absolutely amazing. Because that's one of the things that I want to get to, right, was when we were thinking about your background is like, 
where did the love, you know, for baseball come? Because I know you went to school on a basketball scholarship, basketball right? Scholarship, yes. So, so it was just really, so thank you for sharing that. So we can kind of connect the dots, man. Yeah. So even though, um, you know, it was a smaller city that you grew up in, were you guys still out there playing with as many people, you know, maybe not organized, but just, yeah. you know, the kids going out there and oh, finding yeah. the sandlot and going out and playing the game. Okay. No, we played everything that was in season. So, you know, <laughs> we basketball, we'd get together, put the kids together, play football, you know, baseball. And the, and the thing about it, when you're playing on the sandlot, because you mentioned it wasn't organized, you didn't have to have nine kids on each team. You just divided up the kids and then that you made it. up your own rules. So if you hit the ball to Miss Jones, you you out. So you kind of <laughs> learn to hit the ball to the opposite field and these kinds of things. And so, you know, yeah, and, and it was it was a great environment to learn to play, but my older brothers played, they didn't even call it baseball, they called it hardball. And they would have these hardball games at the little park in town. And people would turn out to watch. I mean, people were bringing picnic baskets, so they frying chicken, eating potato salad, these kinds of things, sitting on their cars, watching the local town teams come out and play each other. And, and so that was kind of the real introduction to me, to the game. And I, I fell in love with this game, just like I think every child, once they get to experience it. You know, for me, it's almost like hitting the golf ball. When you hit that golf ball for the first time and you square it up, oh, man, you're in love. Now, you may not <laughs> ever get to hit it again that way. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but you're constantly trying. And it's the same thing with baseball. The first time you hit that baseball or the first time you catch that ball in your glove, your mitt, Man, you're hooked on it. And, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why we're working so hard to try to get more of our kids mm -hmm. to fall in love with this game. It is a great game. And you're, you're hearing this from a guy who plays small college basketball, you know. Mm -hmm. and uh, But baseball, in my mind, is still the greatest game ever invented. Mm -hmm. You know, it is by far, I think, the most difficult of the games to play. Because you think about this, guys. It is the only one of the major sports that you're on offense and you don't have the ball. Yeah, you don't have the ball. Yeah. That's how no. tough that's how tough this game is. Yeah, that's how tough this game is. And and, and my friend Buck O'Neill, he would say, You could have two 80-year-old men sitting on the couch watching a baseball game, a guy hits a pop fly and they let it drop. And what's the first words come out of their mouth? I could have caught that yeah, I because we all think we can play this game, even though it is the most challenging of all of them to play. It is a game that we all feel like we can play because our physical stature doesn't really determine whether you can play this game or not. And that's the beauty of baseball. And it is a sport predicated on failure. Yeah. You're going to fail more times more than you succeed in we this sport. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, there's just not another sport like that where you hit 300 and you're a Hall of Famer. Hall of Famer. Yeah, you're a Hall of Famer. <laughs> I love it. 30% well, hey, success rate. Right. <laughs> so I don't want to gloss over this, but I do want to dig in to make sure we spend, you know, ample time on this. But Talk to us a little bit about your your time in playing basketball at, at College Park, right? Because that that is a big transition, right? That is why you're here today and yeah, where you are they, right now. So how did you get recruited? And then, like, how, you know, just what was that experience like? You know, I'm still wondering how the hell they found me in Crawfordville, Georgia. 
I still don't know how Park College found me in a little bit of Crawfordville, Georgia. I was on my way to Howard University. And I had, from the time, guys, that I was maybe 10, 12 years old, I had a brother that lived in D.C. And so from that time on, I knew I was going to Howard University. And I had gotten accepted. My senior year, I got accepted to Howard University. But they wanted me to walk on for basketball. They didn't have any money for me. And so I was prepared to do that. And then in the 13th hour, here comes Little Park College in Parkville, Missouri, saying, hey, we got some money for you if you want to come out here. And of course, I followed the money. I went with the money, man. (laughs) And so I packed up. My brother came and picked me up, drove me from Crawfordville to Parkville, Missouri. We pull up on the campus. It's a small, quaint, beautiful little campus. But the dorm that I was staying in, I'll never forget this, Deering Hall. And it was an older dorm where they put the freshmen in. And you get there, and it's kind of like Wrigley Field with all the vines running up the side <laughs> of the building, like the outfield at Wrigley. And my brother kind of looked at me. He says, well, are you going to stay? I said, yeah, I'm going to stay. And, and, and I, I've been in this area ever since. I played a couple of years there at Park. Ended up, I broke my foot. And when I broke my foot, I kind of said, okay, that's enough now. It's time for me to lock in, focus on my studies. Uh, and I was very fortunate. They allowed me to keep the little partial basketball. Nobody was getting a full ride scholarship at that time, but a little partial mm-hmm. scholarship I had. So I started doing some of the stuff that you guys are doing. I was writing uh, on the radio, doing a little TV stuff on the campus. And, but, you know, I was still connected to sports. And I knew I always had a passion for sports. And I just felt like I would do something sports related. I had no idea it would be on the history of sports. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, but, you know, in my mind, EJ, I thought I could shoot it. Yeah, I thought <laughs> I could shoot it. You know, they didn't have the three-point line when I got to park in 1980. And so my kids get tired of hearing me talk about, but they got the chance to witness, a, you know, play a little pickup basketball that the old man could have a little range. He could shoot a little bit. Uh, and, and I still think I can shoot it, but no, I can't do it anymore. I need a whole <laughs> lot of pick now to get a shot off. <laughs> I love it. So that so that's the scouting report. Yeah, don't, yeah, don't, don't, let Mr., don't let Mr. Kendrick shoot. Yeah, yeah don't no, give him no space. <laughs> I love it. Well, that's a great kind of segue into, you know, what you were doing in college, like writing and, and, and doing the, the radio show, because you started and we're moving into the career. So we like to call this part of the um, uh, in the game. Right. So you started your career in the news world. Right. So uh, you started with the lo- was it the local paper is the no, Kansas City when, Star? I, when I graduated from college, uh-huh. my first job was with the Kansas City Star. Okay. The daily newspaper, the but daily, I was gotcha. working. I was working in what they call the composing room. It is where they were actually putting the paper together. So this was before the advent of computer and paginated, computer-generated layouts. We were literally cutting and pasting the type and put in position to have the pages sent for the plates to be made. And, and, you know, everybody always talks about me now because, you know, I, I come to work and I'm dressed. I got my suits on and this kind of thing. And I, I wear my hats and that kind of thing. And But back then, guys, I was wearing a denim apron. 
Y'all had a denim, a denim apron, a piker pole, and an exacto knife. <laughs> Getting busy. Man, those were the tools of my trade at that time. But I learned the inner workings of the newspaper business. I got to work with some amazing editors who were, you know, they they would literally give you kind of a draft of the layout, and then you had to kind of cut and paste this to their specifications, and you had to do it in a timely fashion because you got to get the paper out. Oh, and, and so you learn about how to work under deadline pressure and these kinds of things. And so once I just wanted to get my foot in the building, I didn't know which way I was going to gravitate, whether it was going to be onto the editorial side of the business or the marketing advertising side of the business. As it turns out, I moved to the marketing advertising side of the business, working in the stars promotions department which functioned as its in-house advertising agency. And it was in that role. And by that time, I had been promoted to senior copywriter in the STARS promotions department. That's when I drew the assignment of promoting the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum's first ever traveling exhibition, an exhibition called Discover Greatness. Fellas, it is still touring the country to this day. That was 1993. It's in Piscataway, New Jersey right now. And uh, that was my introduction to a Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I had no idea that this little fledgling museum even existed until I drew that assignment of helping them promote that exhibit. Oh, we really? So you, you, you've been in town and working? I was in town. I had no idea because this was 1993. The museum was established in 1990 as a 501c3 not-for-profit organization essentially opened the doors to the public in 1991 in a little tiny one-room office. So this thing is grassroots. It is very much grassroots. And the Kansas City Star was literally right down the street from this museum. You know, it's it's it was only about 16 blocks, less than that, from the museum. And and I had no idea that it even existed. Mm. And so when I go over to try and get a feel for this place, so that I could start working on the advertising campaign for it. Mm-hmm. I go over and I remember going up to a third floor office inside the historic Lincoln building, which the that building is the only one that still functions from back in the day. And I go up and the late Don Motley, who was the museum's executive director at that time, I knock on the door. I say, I'm looking for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. He looks up at me. And he smiles. He says, son, you're standing in it. (laughs) But as I told a group of young people today, a group of young football players, I was very fortunate. We took a group of high school football players from Lincoln College Prep, which is an urban school, but it's such a great school. And the Kansas City Chiefs have kind of adopted the football program, helped build a new football field there. And so they had... Uh, Trent McDuffie, uh, who's their first round draft pick out of Washington. And they also had Justin Reed, the new free agent signee who's coming in to play safety for us. And we all met and we walked around the place. And as I shared with the young people, that day that I walked into that little one room office was the day that I literally walked into what would become my passion. I had no idea at that time. I had no idea that it would turn into a career. 
certainly didn't know that. Didn't know there's no way to see that coming and would become one of the most gratifying things that I think I could have ever done. And, and, and that's what we talk about, even with my young major league athletes, when they come in, the other athletes, it, it really warms my heart to see other athletes from other sports disciplines come in, because I think we know that all roads lead back to the Negro Leagues. If you're black or brown, you play a professional team sport in this country, it all starts with the Negro Leagues. And so to see those who don't make their living in the game coming in, learning this history, hopefully embracing and appreciating that their roots are very much embedded inside this story as well. So that's and, great to hear that that you have the other professional sports in town at least at least visit it, right? Like it yeah. may not hit in that moment, but them coming is, you know, that ripple, right? And you don't know oh, where no that doubt. Is. No doubt. Wow. And they're gonna go back and tell the other guys, hey man, we were down at Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Justin said Justin Reed said one of the first things that Patrick Mahomes said to him when he learned <clears throat> that they were coming down to the museum is that you're really going to enjoy this. And Bob's going to share some stories with you that, you know, they're going to sound too good to be true, but they are true. They, they are. I tell people all the time that, that when it comes to the Negro Leagues, truth is much better than fiction because <laughs> you don't have to make these stories up, man. You know, you don't have to make them up to make them entertaining. Just tell the real story. They're entertaining in their own right. And, and we had a chance to walk through with about, I guess it must have been 15, 20 young football players, high school football players from Lincoln today. And, and that's what we talk about, passion, finding your passion, following your passion. Oh. And that was the beautiful thing about the guys who played in the Negro Leagues. They just loved the game. And they loved it so much that they were willing to endure whatever social adversity confronted them as they were traveling the highways and byways of this country. I mean, do you understand how easy it would have been for them to quit? Oh, just yeah. say the hell with this because they weren't making that much money and you got to deal with all the indignities that came along during a, a segregated society, Jim Crow, not knowing where you could stop to get something to eat or have a place to sleep. It would have been so easy to quit and they refused to because they knew, fellas, how good they were. They knew they could play. And they wanted the world to know how good they were. So if I've got to sleep on the bus, if I got to eat my peanut butter and crackers, I'm going to keep playing ball. You can't rob me of that joy okay. of playing baseball. And I think that resonates with virtually every athlete. I don't care what skin color you are. Right. Yeah, that's just that sheer love of the game that resonates. And I think with my young football players today, it resonated with them as well. We're going to get a little bit into your, your podcast, but one talk about stories. One story that I, I heard on the podcast um, that I think I, I, if you could share just parts of it with us um, about a, 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 a woman in, in, in the game. And there's multiple mm -hmm. women in the Negro Leagues that I didn't have any idea, but specifically Miss Peanut Johnson, the pitcher. Maybe. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, no, there were three women to play in the Negro Leagues. They were all pioneers. Tony Stone was the first of those women to play in the Negro Leagues, and they competed with and against the men in the 1950s in the Negro Leagues. As a matter of fact, Tony Stone took the roster place of the legendary Henry Aaron. Oh, wow. So when the wow. Braves signed Henry Aaron away from the Indianapolis Clowns, Henry Aaron was there playing for the Clowns in 1952. Man, he couldn't weigh more than 150, 160 pounds soaking wet 
and he was a cross-handed hitting shortstop. And, and for those who might be hearing that term, he was a right-hand hitter who was hitting with his left hand on top. And that is unorthodox. The fear is that you break your wrist hitting in that manner. Mr. Aaron is knocking the cover off the baseball in a highly unorthodox fashion. They reluctantly put the right hand on top, and the rest, as we say, is history. history. So he signed away by the Braves in 52. In 53, the Clowns hired Tony Stone to take his roster place. And then they would eventually bring in my girl, Mamie Peanut Johnson. I got to know her. I didn't get to know Tony Stone and Connie Morgan. They had both passed away before I got involved with the museum, but I got to know Miss Johnson really well. As a matter of fact, I had the steam honor of speaking at her funeral services in 2017. Wow. And so, yeah, the story that, that MH is referring to was her first game against the Kansas City Monarchs. And the Monarchs had a really good ball player by the name of Hank Bayless. And Hank Bayless gets into the batter's box and he digs in, he peers out there and realizes that the pitcher is a woman. <laughs> and in this very condescending voice, he says, what you doing out there? You ain't no bigger than a peanut. She promptly struck him out. And she was peanut from that day on. And she was so proud of what she, Tony, and Connie had done. And M.H. Mamie was the only one of the three women that wanted to try out for the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. And of course, you both know that that is the league that was the inspiration for the hit film. A yeah. League of Their Own. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. and, and you may recall there was one scene, if you saw that film, one scene in the film where the ball gets loose and the sister picks it up and she fires it back. And you can see Gina Davis and everybody looking in astonishment. Well, that was the late, great Penny Marshall who directed the film. That was her ode to Mamie Peanut Johnson. Uh-huh. Uh yeah, it was a very powerful scene because black women were excluded from the All-American mm -hmm. Girls Professional League as well. Years later, they gave Mamie an, an honorary membership to the All-American Girls Professional League. But she, as she would tell you, not making that team mm -hmm. or not getting an opportunity to try out was fate. Because shortly thereafter, the Indianapolis Clowns came calling. And now she is one of only three, three. to do what she did. Yeah. And, and so in many ways, it's far more important. And, and it set her aside from virtually everybody else who played this game. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. So talk about that transition uh, from the One Room Museum uh, to where it sits now, um, that transition. I know you were a part of that. And then. It was led by the, the late, great Buck O'Neill. So talk about a little bit about that for us. Yeah, man. And, and start with, because MH, we are on the same accord, start with where it's located, right? Because I think even yeah. that has historical context. Oh, it absolutely does. It's located at historic 18th and Vine in Kansas City. And for those who might be hearing that street cross-section for the first time, 18th and Vine was as recognized street cross-section as there was anywhere in the world because you had that intrinsic mixture of jazz and baseball radiating from that street corner. Anyone who was anyone made their way to Kansas City because Kansas City was wide open. And 18th and Vine was even more wide open. It was all happening 
there at AJ's and Vine. And it is also the area in which the Negro Leagues were formed. Yeah, so when people ask why a Negro Leagues Museum is in Kansas City, it is because Kansas City is the birthplace of the Negro Leagues. The leagues were formed right around the corner from where the museum currently operates at the Paseo YMCA. The building still stands. As a matter of fact, we have designated that historic landmark as the future home of the Buckle-Neal Education and Research Center. So we're saving that old abandoned YMCA and we'll convert it into an education and research center in memory of my dear friend Buck O'Neill and essentially fellas go full circle right back to the very building that gave birth to the story we're now charged with preserving. And so that's why it made sense that a museum dedicated to the subject matter be right there, not only in Kansas City, but in the exact same area in which these leagues were established. And, and so we started, as I mentioned, in that little one-room office, <laughs> and we have now grown into what is it's about a 10,000-square-foot exhibit. So it's not an overwhelming footprint, but man, within those 10,000 square feet is a lot of information. Yeah, you people come there and they are absolutely amazed by what they learn. And to be quite frank, they leave a little bit dismayed by the fact that I just now had an opportunity to learn this. Why didn't I know this when I was in school? Yeah. And the answer is simple. American historians, guys, did us all a tremendous disservice. They kept this wonderful piece of baseball and Americana away from us. So as I oftentimes say, countless generations of us have gone through our own formal educations without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in baseball history, but in American history. history and that's yeah. that rich, compelling, inspirational story of, of the Negro Leagues. And, and along that journey, from that one room office to those 10,000 square feet of exhibit space that chronicles the story of black baseball in America in general and the professional Negro League specifically, the Little Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is today recognized as America's national Negro Leagues Baseball Museum as deemed and designated so by the United States Congress in 2006. So it has been an amazing journey for a museum that no one gave any ch chance of succeeding. And I can understand why, because not only were we building a monument that was dedicated to a piece of history that most people did not know about, we were going to do it in the heart of an urban community that had essentially been left abandoned. Fine. It had been left to die. And, and it had basically suffered the same fate as so many urban communities across this country. And there is a common bond to a number of those communities. Wherever you had successful Black baseball, you typically had thriving Black economies. When we lost the Negro Leagues, we lost that catalyst. We lost that spark that helped drive Black business success. And so, so many of those communities essentially perished. 18th and Vine was no exception. And here comes this museum. And you know what? We have essentially done for that community what Black baseball had done for so many communities years ago. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful thing to see that people are now living and working and playing at historic 18th and Vine again. And at the center of that 
is the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. You touched on it. I think it's so important. I used to live in Boston, Massachusetts, and you could walk around Boston, Massachusetts, and they say, oh, that blade of grass was something that Paul Revere stepped on, right? And they are so proud of the history of Paul. It doesn't matter what it is. It's like this is where Paul Revere was. But to preserve <laughs> our history, I didn't mean to joke about that. It's, 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 it's true story. It's a literally true story in Boston. They'll, they'll, yeah. But to preserve our history, uh, I think it's huge. And I think we need to do more of that as a, as a, as a people and as a culture. Touch on that. Well, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, because what we know, fellas, is that there are tremendous gaps in the pages of American history books. Yes. History has essentially only been told through one purview. And uh, there are so many who have contributed to the greatness of this country and their stories have never been told. And so it is incumbent upon cultural institutions like the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to help bridge those gaps. You know, that's part of the reason why we're so important. And that's why I talk about the fact that people leave there sometimes dismayed. And these are not just black folks. These are folks of all races because we don't necessarily like the fact that someone arbitrarily decided what you and I should know. Yeah, someone else made that decision for us you know, rather than us having an opportunity to determine what we want to learn and when we want to learn about it. And that is by by far the reaction that I see from so many of our visitors when they come in. It's like, how could I not know this? Yeah. Just robbed yeah. of it in a sense, right? Oh, no question. I mean, you know, we've been cheated. And I talk about that even from a baseball per- perspective. As baseball fans, we were cheated. We should have seen all the great players take the field together. And it only leads you to wonder how much better our game would have been. We saw what happened after 1947 when the doors did open. And all of a sudden, black and brown players started to flow into Major League Baseball. What happens? Major League Baseball was better. The game was better. As I remind people, they didn't learn to play baseball after 1947. They were playing great baseball well before 1947. So it only makes you wonder what if, what if the doors had opened sooner? Well, the record books would be entirely different. But what we saw happen was, you won't let me play with you in the major leagues. Okay, I'll create my own league. Yeah, I'll create my own. And and then my league would actually rise to rival, and in many cities across this country, surpass the league that would not let me play. There's a monumental lesson that comes from that story in itself. And, And so that's what we talk about there in Kansas City here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum you can't rob me of this joy of playing this game. I'll show you. And that was their spirit. And and then they had such a tremendous impact on helping those segregated, mandated Black-owned businesses be successful because they're bringing them a built-in clientele that patronized those businesses. Yes. When Jackie breaks the color barrier, he, in essence, spawns integration in a much broader capacity 
And now all of these smaller Black-owned businesses could no longer compete. And they died. And, and yeah, they died. And so if there's a bittersweet aspect to the all, overall story of the Negro Leagues, it lies in the fact that you can directly parallel the rise and fall of the Negro Leagues with the rise and fall of Black economy in this country. And to a great extent, Black economy never recovered from losing the Negro Leagues. Wow. Yeah, I, we just got to let that breathe. <laughs> for just a second, boy, hey, that's, there's so many things with that, right? Like it just having a chance to go to the museum, but just to stay on topic, man, uh, MH, you got to hit these uh, quick hits so we can, there's a lot of stuff we still want to want to jump into. Yeah, Mr. Kendrick, this is kind of some random questions that help our listeners kind of know you a little bit more mm -hmm. uh, kind of quick off the top. So um, you told, you mentioned the first time you were starstruck, but give me give me a top three movies, a quotable movies. What, what, what's Mr. Kendrick watching? Well, they, they're usually comedies and they usually involve Eddie Murphy. So <laughs> coming to America, life. And, and probably trading places. Uh, you know, those would all rank right up there in my top three. All the quotables uh, in those. You know, because I just love a laugh. I, I watch Coming to America and Life every time that it, I don't care if it's on network, if it's on cable, you know, <laughs> whatever. Anytime that they're on, I watch them. I think I know every line from the movie. And, and, and I still laugh just as hard as if I, you know, was watching this film for the very first time. And so, you know, uh, nothing too, nothing too over the top serious, man. I just enjoy laughing. And, and those Eddie Murphy flicks always get me. It's America, Jack. Now you say, <laughs> my son works. <laughs> my son works. I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, Put you in this tough situation, but the two blessed uh barbecue spots in Kansas Ooh. City. Well, I'm a Gates barbecue fan. Oh, okay. Now, okay. now <laughs> let me preface this by saying I might be a little bit tainted and biased because Ollie Gates, who owns the chain of Gates barbecue restaurants, is helping me build the Buckle Neal Education Research Center. So <laughs> So I might be just a little bit biased. Hey, I'm going to have to make sure I grab some extra Gates barbecue sauce in the airport on my way home. Then. <laughs> do do my part. My go -to spot. That's my go-to spot. And man, I tell you what, there are so many great barbecue places in Kansas City. There's been a couple of new places that have emerged that are really outstanding. And, and a sleeper pick is a, a restaurant called Jousting Pigs. Man, these guys can flat out. They were a competition barbecue team that has now started a restaurant. It is outstanding. Uh, but Gates has always been my go-to spot. Yeah, if, if you're putting pigs in the name of your restaurant, you can cook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're doing something. Especially <laughs> so fighting pigs. So we're going to do like a kind of an all-time lineup here a little bit. So. I need a leadoff hitter. I need a cleanup hitter. I need somebody that's going to close the game in the starting pitcher. Who will be your favorite in those four positions here uh, for the Negro League Baseball? Oh, man. Uh, leadoff has got to be Cool Papa Bell. Cool Papa Bell. Yeah, Cool Papa going to get on base. He's going to steal your bases. 
he, he was the quintessential leadoff guy. Yeah, he could slap that ball on, you know, slap that ball in the hole. And his speed was such, if he bunted the ball back to the pitcher, the entire infield would start saying, hurry. Oh. You know, <laughs> Mr. Kendrick, is that real? Is that real life? <laughs> <laughs> so cool would be my leadoff hitter. Josh Gibson would have to be hitting in the cleanup spot. Absolutely. Power personified. You know, he was going to drive him in. He was going to put fear in the other pitcher's heart. You know, he didn't have a weakness as a hitter. He just didn't because, yeah, as you know, most power hitters, they're going to strike out a lot. Right. Back then, about 100 times a year. Today, almost 200 times in the season. <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. But, you know, that's the way the game is played now. I guess I'm just a little old school. I don't know how you can strike out 200 times and that still be considered good. But the the analytics, the saber metrics and all of this stuff says, well, if you get me 20, 25 home runs, it doesn't matter if you strike out that many times. I just don't see how that could be good. It's not good for the game either. Mm-hmm. But Josh might strike out 25, 30 times in a season wow. with incredible power. And he wasn't just a great power hitter. He was a great hitter. Lifetime batting average of nearly 354. And in head-to-head competition against major leaguers and countless exhibition games, hit over 420. And guys, he's doing it as a catcher. Mm-hmm. Catchers don't do that. No, no, no. You get one or the other, but rarely do you get the combination of the two. And he gave you both. And then if I'm going to have a starter, it's got to be Leroy Satchel Page. Yeah. <laughs> as Mark O'Neill would say, you might beat him when he was out there messing. Yes, sir. You might beat him when he was out there messing around. But, fellas, when he was locked and loaded, forget about it. Forget about <laughs> it. Cold. You know, he had he had everything you needed to be a star. And he was. He was one of the biggest stars on the face of the planet. And the bigger the moment, the better he was. And, and, and so you, you need that kind of guy. Now, there were a lot of great pitchers in the Negro Leagues. But very few of them combined what Satchel had. And that was longevity. By his estimation, he pitched Mm -hmm. in over 2,600 games. The great stuff. Recorded some 55 no-hitters and only God knows how many strikeouts. And the charisma. He could sell it. Yeah, he could sell it. You know, because when he rode into town, the entire town was shut down to watch the old man do his thing, and he would guarantee to strike out the first nine, and more times than not, he did. And and so people, I mean, people still come to me so many years later saying, well, I saw Satchel pitch when I was a little boy. My grandfather talked about Satchel. I mean, he was the guy. And then I think closing for me would be Satchel's relief, a guy by the name of Hilton Smith. Hilton Smith is in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And I always say that he had the misfortune of being on the same team with Satchel. Misfortune is probably not the right word because I'm sure Hilton enjoyed his time playing with Satchel. But when Satchel walked in the room, the room lit up. You knew he was in the room. 
when Hilton Smith walked in, he was very quiet, very workmanlike, very reserved, just as lethal. He, Hilton Smith did something that I don't think we will ever see done in the game of baseball again. He won 20 games or more, 12 consecutive years. But you hear Satchel, when we talk about Satchel pitching almost every day, two or three innings almost every day, because he was the drawing card. He was the meal money. And, and no matter how people might have felt about Satchel, if you were on his team, you understood that Satchel helped you get paid. Uh-huh. And, and so, but Satchel would pitch his two or three innings. And who came in to pitch the last six or seven? Hilton Smith. And, and the old timers would say, the old timers in Negro League say, well, if you're going to get anything, you better get it off of Satchel because you're not going to touch Hilton Smith. And, and he had what some say is the greatest curveball the sport has ever seen. Buckle wow. Neal and Monty Irvin both swear that Hilton Smith threw the greatest curveball that they've ever seen. He threw the big 12 to 6 breaker, that big over the top breaking pitch. And then he threw what he called a tight curveball. Today, about three quarters here, they would call it a slider today. And he threw it with amazing pinpoint control. Uh, and then what Hilton Smith is also going to give you, he's going to give you a big bat. Yeah, you'll need the DH. No, he'll need the DH. <laughs> Hilton Smith, Hilton Smith hit over 300 for his career because when he wasn't pitching, he played the outfield. I love it. I love it. All right. So we're going to jump into the winner's circle because this is some of the important stuff. And this is, you know, I, I think one of, one of the, the best parts that we like to do as far as the show is just talk about some of the great things, um, you know, you have going on there. Uh, so want to start off with really big, seeing it on social and then, of course, prepping for the show is a commemorative coin collection yes. that, that you guys have got uh, done with the U.S. Mint. So tell us about that. And um, these we're going to probably do a little more rapid because there's a lot of great things you have going on. And I want to make sure we cover them all, you know, as uh, as we get going. Well, it's something that we are, as you can well imagine, tremendously proud of to have earned the opportunity for the Met to create the first ever set of commemorative coins dedicated to the Negro Leagues. And when you understand how challenging it, challenging it is to get these coins, because you have to have over three-fourths of Congress sign off on it. Oh, wow. We were able to get this done in 2020 during a pandemic and in the midst of a very contentious presidential election year where the Democrats and Republicans did not exactly see eye to eye. It wasn't a whole lot of bipartisanship going on in Congress at that time. And somehow or another, the winning spirit of the Negro Leagues was able to bridge both sides of the aisle. We garnered enough votes that we could pass the legislation that authorized the Mint to create these coins. The president signed them into law. And in 2021, I spent most of the year working with the men on a design element for the coins. And then this year, in April of this year, the coins were released officially. And along with the prestige of getting these coins, because they are so challenging, the men only produces two of these coins a year. And along with the prestige of getting them is the real potential financial ramifications that come if we can sell them through. Mm -hmm. And if we can, we can raise nearly $6 million in support for this museum from surcharges back to the host organization. 
This won't cost the taxpayers a dime. The mint recoups all of the expenses for the minting and marketing of the coins that they may absorb. And then the rest of the resources are passed back to the museum. And so it could be a bountiful opportunity if we're able to sell through the coins. We need to sell, obviously, as many as we possibly can. But the sad part about it is what is not sold by the end of December, they're literally destroyed. They are melted. We don't want that to happen. Now, we want to keep these in circulation for as long as we can. And so we're encouraging people to go on to the U.S. Mint website at usmint.gov and look at the Negro Leagues coins. And we hope that you will support this effort by buying this keepsake coin that is only going to grow in value. So there's a three coin set. There's a gold, a silver, and a clad copper coin. And they're, they're just magnificent. And each coin has its own unique designs on both the front and back uh, of all three coins. And so it's one of the, I think one of the coolest things that we've ever done. We had to work really hard as you can well imagine to get it done, but uh, hopefully it will pay off in the long run. Absolutely. And another thing, probably won't touch much on this because there's some other things I want to get to, but you know, you guys have your commemorative uh, license plate and here locally yeah. we've seen. Yeah, so it's a local plate. effort. Yeah, yeah, the license no. plates do well. So the Raiders have one, VGK has one. Um, UFC is really about to kick off one. So glad to see that is going and, and you guys have that campaign around that. Yeah, no, we're just always trying to find creative ways in which we can generate awareness, brand awareness, and raise some money for this, this not-for-profit organization and so you know you, you try to turn over every rock and stone that you can to try and get it done so next thing i want to jump to and then of course uh you mentioned this so we'll do both um just the black diamond podcast right yeah so what was the the thought behind that and like is there any partnership or um with your uh negro league 101 that you started right because i think both of those are are ways to communicate and just get people that taste to 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 you know to entice them to get them in yeah no and and you you just hit it you hit the nail on the head you're always finding ways to create relevancy how can i get people to engage around the story and i can't always wait for them guys to come to me I need to go to them and I need to go to them with the mechanisms and platforms that they are comfortable getting their information. And so while I had interviewed on virtually everyone's podcast, particularly sports podcast, I never thought about having my own podcast and, and Sirius XM radio reached out to me and they said, well, Bob, we think you're a pretty good storyteller. We would love to create this, this podcast series with you. And I was resistant. I really was because I'm looking at my schedule. I'm like, man, I don't have time to commit to doing this. But the more I thought about it, you realize that this is a national, international platform that Sirius was providing this museum. We could not pay for this kind of publicity that we're generating. And so I kind of relented we started the podcast last April, and in December, it was named the National Sports Podcast of the Year by Adweek, something that we're tremendously proud of, uh, as you could well imagine. You don't do this for accolades. You do this because you've got something that you want to share that you think people will be interested in. But my heart 
it, it just overflows with great joy that a new generation of baseball fans in particular are falling in love with the Negro Leagues through this platform, this long form storytelling platform. And, and it's interesting to see how storytelling has taken on a whole new level of interest now. Because for us, in our culture, our heritage, that is how we learn about mm -hmm. ourselves. We're not there in the pages of American history books. Mm -hmm. So your grandfather, your grandmother sat you down and they told you, say, hey, boy, let me tell you about these ball players you should have known about. <laughs> yeah, you should have seen plays. Sure, and, and so it's just, it blows me away that young people are just into podcasts. And, and so we tell stories, we call them untold stories of the Negro Leagues. The guys over at Sirius do an amazing job. The production value on these are top notch. And so I sit down and I come up with story ideas and we tell stories. We try to contemporize it by either having a current former major yeah. leader that might relate to the subject that we're talking about or an author or someone else that, you know, so for me, I go from telling stories to doing what you guys do. I get to flip the script and become the interviewer. And so it's been a lot of fun. We've had a great, you know, we've had some amazing guests on, we've told some amazing stories and people have just been blown away by it. And, um, you know, I, I made a commitment in year one for 20 episodes, a year a commitment this year for another 20 episodes. It always turns out to be more than 20 episodes. But that <laughs> is a commitment. Uh, and we find time to make it happen. Uh, and I'm glad that people are really enjoying it. Love it. So one of your uh one of your guests was Mookie Betts. And I guess yeah. just real quick, kind of talk on um, you know, the, the the black players in the game right now. And what they're learning uh, from from the Negro League Baseball Museum. Well, you know, we've been blessed to have so many of our that handful of young black stars come to the museum. Mookie has been several times, and so to sit down and catch up with him, which is the first time I've had a chance to catch up with him since he joined the Dodgers. Uh, the Red Sox would annually bring guys by the museum. My good friend Joe Castiglione, who is the radio voice of the Red Sox, would always bring guys by, and he brought Mookie by and. Of course, Jackie Bradley was still with the team at that time and several other guys. And, and and so, but it had been a while since I had an opportunity to catch up with Mookie. And, you know, representation does matter. And our sport, I think, is the most aspirational of them all. So if kids are wanting to get into this game, they need someone that they can emulate. And when you talk about Mookie Best, I'm thinking you're talking about one of the very best in the game. You know, he is a consummate five-tool kind of player. And, and so, but he finds the Negro Leagues fascinating. You know, just as most of the young major league stars, black or white, they just all find it fascinating. Because again, when you make your living in a game like this and you know how difficult it is to play under the best of circumstances, no less the kind of adversity that these athletes had to face, you can't help but love and appreciate what they were able to accomplish, you know, against that backdrop of segregation, Jim Crow. And, and yet they played the game as well as anyone ever played the game. And Mookie embodies the spirit of the Negro Leagues. He plays the game like they played it in the Negro Leagues. You know, that's why we need more of that. The Negro Leagues understood that this game was entertainment. It yeah. was entertainment, 
you know, at its very finest. And, and it didn't mean that you weren't going to see sound fundamental baseball. But when you combine great fundamentals with great athleticism, oh, you get something special to see. And, and so, and they knew that, which is why the fans flocked in to watch them play. Or as Buck O'Neill would say, you couldn't go to the concession stand because you might miss something that you ain't never seen before. <laughs> I love it. So speaking of Mookie, he's a part of um, the Players Alliance that they formed. I want to say that was in 2020, like while we were going through that social mm -hmm. unrest. And maybe it's at work before, and they, they did a stop here in Las Vegas. Um, what are they bringing or, or what's in the works? Or, or, or have there been any kind of conversation of how they can be ingrained in kind of telling not only the story of baseball, but the Negro Leagues as well? Well, and, and I think and I appreciate the fact that my good friend Curtis Granderson, who heads the Player Alliance, he is such a strong advocate of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Every club that Curtis played on, if they came to Kansas City, he came to visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And as the head of the Player Alliance and their charge is obviously to grow this game in urban communities, he clearly understands that in order to do that, the history of our place in this sport becomes very, very important. And so I think you'll see that the Negro Leagues will be front and center in the Alliance's efforts to try and grow our sport in, in urban cores because, again, you have to see yourself in that space. And so when kids walk through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, they see people who look just like them, who played this game, guys, as well as anyone ever played this game. But not only did they play the game, they owned teams. Mm. They were managers and coaches and traveling secretaries and team physicians. They fulfilled every role that you could fulfill within the business of the game of baseball. And so it is important that we help them understand their place in this game. They have a proud legacy in this game. And I think the Alliance certainly understands that and have embraced that. And so I fully expect that we'll see some significant partnership opportunities between the two entities as we move into the future. That's awesome. So um, one of the things uh, that you got started and we want to make sure we talk about is the Buck O'Neill Golf Classic, which is uh, coming up. So um, a lot of great momentum with uh, Mr. O'Neill getting, um, you know, get, going to be inducted into the hall. So just talk yeah. to us about that and, and just what that means. Well, it's such a tremendous opportunity for this museum and, Honestly, fellas, I haven't stopped smiling since Sunday, December the 5th of 2021, about 545 Central Standard Time, when <laughs> National Baseball Hall of Fame president started to read the bio, and we knew instantly that it was Buck, and that he had finally got his rightful place by being voted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame 15 years at that time, after he had missed by one vote. And so... This is so exciting because it's so such a well-deserved honor. It's bittersweet. I'll be the first to admit that. It's bittersweet because, you know, I wish my friend was still with us so that we could high-five and hug and chest bump with our guy. But it certainly does not diminish the significance of this accomplishment because it completes his baseball legacy. 
but his legacy is far more bigger than just baseball. But the baseball aspect of his legacy is now completed when Sunday, July 24th comes around and Buck O'Neill is officially enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame and takes his rightful place amongst the immortals of our sport. Now it becomes incumbent upon this museum that we capitalize off of Buck's Hall of Fame induction, that we do essentially what Buck wanted us to do had he gotten in in 2006, when he missed by one vote. He was going to use his Hall of Fame induction to help raise money and awareness for his museum. And, and we need to do the exact same thing because this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And you get basically one shot to get this right. And so hopefully we will have a significant game plan in place that will allow us to create a financial windfall from Buck O'Neill's Hall of Fame induction as a tremendous national platform for his museum. And we just have to be prepared and make sure we take advantage of this opportunity. But man, my heart, again, is just overjoyed um, to see my friend finally get in. Because I had to tell him when he didn't get in in 2006, uh-huh. I was the one that had to go break the news to him that he didn't oh. get in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, man, it was one of the most gut-wrenching things I've ever done in my life. And who handled it better than anyone? Buck O'Neill. Yeah, yeah, Buck handled it better than anyone. I still get mad every time I tell the story. (laughs) I I tell people I'm trying to become more Buck-like. I am still a work in progress. I'm not quite there yet. Uh, And so, but he was, I, I, I think his finest moment in a career that was defined by fine moments came in defeat yeah when he didn't get in and the way that he handled the rejection with such grace class and dignity and it was a an amazing thing to witness i am so glad i was there to witness it because it was one of the most disappointing days for me both personally and professionally the mm-hmm. day that he didn't get in but it was also one of the most inspirational days in my in my life to witness how he handled not getting in yes yeah it was it was it was just uh one of those moments in time that as my mother would say i don't think i'll ever forget as long as i'm in my natural mind (laughs) so uh another thing that i'd want to bring to light just for our listeners and, and because it was amazing and it also fell through um a tough time in 2020 it was a hundred year of mm-hmm. the Negro league during the pandemic and the social unrest. And you guys had an amazing campaign that you were guys getting ready to roll out and did roll out, but you know, because of the times took some thunder. So talk to us about the tip of the cap. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was telling the story today to a group that I was speaking to and we had so much riding on the 100th anniversary. You know, this is a milestone anniversary. And if you understand how not-for-profit organizations kind of think, we will create an anniversary if we think that we can raise some money around it. Yeah, it could be at the 72nd anniversary or something, something, something. We'll create an anniversary. But the 100th anniversary of the birth of the Negro Leagues was a legitimate cause for celebration. And we were prepared for this major year-long celebration we had come together in Kansas City on February 13th of 2020 
100 years from the date that Ruth Foster signed the Negro Leagues into existence. We're right back in the Paseo YMCA, and I've got Commissioner Manfred with me, Xavier James, who's the Chief Operating Officer of Major League Baseball's Player Association, Quentin Lucas, the Honorable Mayor of the great city of Kansas City, Missouri, my good friend Frank White, eight-time Gold Glove winner, Kansas City Royal Hall of Famer, now Jackson County legislator. He was there. Judy Pace Flood, the widow of the legendary Kurt Flood. She was there in attendance. Mike Kehoe, the Lieutenant Governor of the state of Missouri. So I've got an all-star roster of distinguished guests. And I left out my good friend, John Sherman, our brand new owner of the Kansas City Royals. They're all there with us to make this announcement of this year-long celebration to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the birth of the Negro Leagues. Major League Baseball presents the museum. Well, actually Major League Baseball and the Players Association jointly present the museum with a $1 million contribution. And anybody who knows me that knows that anytime a check is involved, I'm smiling. And so I had a million reasons to smile. And, and then we rolled out our plans for this year long celebration, which included a national day of recognition. And as much as I was excited about the million dollars, I think I was more excited about the first time that Major League Baseball in its entirety, all 30 teams, were going to honor the Negro Leagues on one single day. They were going to wear our special commemorative 100th anniversary patch on the uniform, and then we were going to stage in, in all the stadiums that day a tip your cap to the Negro Leagues with fans and players involved in each of the stadiums. This was supposed to happen on June 26th. And it became, you know, 30 days after we have this announcement, so, all heck break loose. Yeah, a doggone coronavirus. As I tell the folks today, I still don't know what a coronavirus is. Although all, all I know is it wreaked havoc. And we had to shutter the museum on March 14th. We didn't reopen it until June 16th of 2020. And it became very apparent that this National Day of Recognition was not going to take place on June 26th. Because if you recall, at that time, both Major League Baseball and the Players Association were in very contentious negoti negotiations, not on when the game was going to be played, but yes. if the game was going to be played. And, and so, yeah, I tell people all the time, as a steward of the story, you know that you are not allowed to wallow in self-pity. Oh, this would be doing a complete disservice to those athletes who called the Negro Leagues home. They never cried about the social injustice. They went out and did something about it. So you know you're not allowed to wallow. But I'd be lying to y'all if I told you I wasn't doing some wallowing. Yeah, there was some <laughs> wallowing going on now. And, and because we saw all of these opportunities falling by the wayside. Mm -hmm. So much planning had gone into place. Now it's time to execute. And you can't. And after few weeks of wallowing, you know you've got to figure out a way. You know, you have to make a way when there seemingly is no way. No way. And you dig deep into what I call the resilient spirit of the Negro Leagues. And so I had an epiphany. At least I thought I did anyway. I reached out to my good friend Joe Posnanski, the great writer. 
And Joe is my brother from another mother. We're not biological brothers, but we are as close as brothers. And every time, fellas, I have a bad idea, I vet that idea with Joe. So I called Joe. I said, Joe, what do you think about an idea to do a virtual tip your cap to the Negro Leagues? Maybe we could get a few dignitaries and a few current former athletes and others to tip their cap. Because as you both know, in our sport, there's nothing more honorable that a ball player can do than just a simple tip of the cap. It is the ultimate show of respect. And I'm waiting for him to tell me, Bob, we don't have enough time to do this. You're crazy. He didn't say that. He thought it was a great idea. He reached out to his business partner, a guy named Dan McGinn, a tremendous communication strategist out of the D.C. area. And we shared the idea with Dan. He thought it was a great idea. And the three of us went to work. And in about a week's time prior to when the June 26th celebration would have taken place in stadiums on June 27th, we rolled out this crazy concept called tip your cap to the Negro Leagues. And we rolled it out with four U.S. presidents tipping their cap. That's President right. Obama, President George W. Bush, President Bill Clinton, President Jimmy Carter, transcending athletes like Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Billie Jean King, entertainers to the likes of Stephen Colbert, Conan O'Brien, the late great General Powell, Henry Aaron. The list just went on and on of incredible folks who jumped on the bandwagon with us to pay homage to the Negro Leagues by tipping their cap. But as I tell people all the time, when we literally went into outer space and got a tip of the cap from astronaut Chris Cassidy, who was aboard the International Space Station, I knew then that we had done something pretty doggone special. And this <laughs> campaign went viral, man. And you again, you don't create these campaigns with the mindset that they're going to go viral. Viral campaigns, you know, they just happen. But, you know, the other side of the equation for me is why I think this really resonated with so many folks was that the George Floyd murder had just recently happened at that time. And honestly, I think we needed something that could galvanize us, you know? And here was this story of the Negro Leagues and the 100th anniversary. And again, I talk about it all the time from the context of the winning spirit of the Negro League that was seemingly bridging some of that racial divide that we were seeing. And people got involved and they supported this. And all of a sudden, the museum goes from this feeling of doom and gloom to renewed hope and optimism. And by the time we got through that year, we had one of the greatest years we've ever had, even though we couldn't celebrate the way that we had hoped to celebrate. And we've been riding that momentum ever since. That's and now, cool. again, the Buck O'Neill celebration becomes that springboard. You know, that's what I told you in early on in the show. I've got to believe that old Buck has guiding my footsteps, man. I'm not that smart. I am not that smart. And somehow this stuff just seems to work. And, you know, we it helped us build some much needed momentum. You know, we're not out of the woods with this thing, but, you know, people are coming back out again. Baseball season's in full swing. We're seeing a lot of people make their way to the museum. Right. We got the Buck O'Neill Hall of Fame celebration that we're planning. And 
a lot of different activities. We're bringing back the Hot Dog Festival, and uh, which is so much fun. We get 10,000 people coming down to 18th and Vine, guys, eating hot dogs, enjoying live entertainment. And so we're working on the entertainment piece of that right now. And that'll be July 30th. And you mentioned the golf tournament, August 9th in Kansas City Celebrity Golf Tournament. And then we'll have the big Buckle Neal Hall of Fame Gala in November. After we get back from Cooperstown, we'll do a star-studded gala on November the 12th here in Kansas City. So a lot of neat things that are going on in and around the museum. And that's fantastic, man. Thank you for sharing those updates. And, you know, I've been periodically putting, um, you know, just kind of the, the Negro League Museum uh, website. And we'll put that in the show notes because even that Tip of the Cap campaign, you can go to your site and click and kind of watch some of those videos. And it's yeah. just amazing to see, like, President yeah. Obama and, and all the people that you have. And that that's just social content. But yeah, uh, no, And the, web, the website is tippingyourcap.com. And it's still live. You can see some of the, the many incredible people who joined us on this. That was, it was such a cool movement, man. Every day, my guys, you know, either I call them and say, hey, such and such is going to send us, submit a video of themselves tipping their cap. We got four generations of Robinson family, Rachel and Sharon and grandkids tipping their cap. And, and it, it was, it was almost competitive between the three of us to see who could get the coldest the coolest tip of the cap, tip of cap you know, right? each and every day. And we just had so much fun with this. But, man, I couldn't think of two better guys to, to work on a project like this than my, my brother Joe Posnanski and Dan McGann. And this thing was epic, you awesome. know. And, yeah, to pull this project together in the time frame in which we did and then see the kind of incredible response that it got. And then to see little kids playing in their little leagues taking pictures of themselves, tipping their cap, <laughs> basically saying, I see you. I appreciate what you did. You know, that's what it's all about, man. It Absolutely. really is. I see you. <laughs> so, all right, we're wrapping it up here. We went a little long because we didn't want to cut off all the amazing things, you know. Um, so this part of the show we like to call the assist. This is uh, where you get to drop a coaching jewel, maybe words you live by. It seems like you were inspired um, by um, – by Buck a lot, so maybe it'd be a quote from him, but just a, a quote to word you live by or maybe something you would tell your younger self. Well, you know, we talked about my purview about passion and following your passion, and I go back to something that Buck O'Neill said to me, and it rings true. If you find a job that you love, you will never work a day in your life. Yeah, if you find a job that you love, you'll never work a day in your life because it's not work. And that doesn't mean that it's not going to be filled with challenges. Right. And for me, there are challenges. Anytime you have to raise money, it's always a challenge. But you know that the work that you're doing, number one, is bigger than who you are. Mm -hmm. Number two, you have an opportunity to leave something that will stand the test of time so that others will get to enjoy it for years to come. And that motivates you. And every day that I walk into that building there at the museums at 18th and Vine, you just feel good. My good friend, Ken Carter, who they made the movie Coach Carter, inspired by his life. Every time he comes to Kansas City and he walks into the atrium there of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, he says, Bob, I just feel good. Yeah, <laughs> you just feel good. And there is a spirit that resonates in that building because unlike most 
pieces of our history which has been dark and painful the story of the negro leagues is the exact opposite it is a celebration and, and that is how we treat it now it is the celebration of the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail but there's nothing sad or somber about the story of the negro leagues the circumstances that dictated a need for a Negro Leagues are sad and sorrowful, but not the Negro Leagues themselves. Now, now they are a great example of what you do to overcome the adversity. So many people would just dwell on the adversity. They didn't. No, it's still, for them, it was about what we do, what did we do to overcome that adversity? Now, don't tell me about my hardships. Tell me about the joy that I had playing this game. Yeah, all the people who came to see me, how how big a star I was. It may have been in my own community, but I'm a star nevertheless. Uh-huh. And, and you see those pictures, and I'm sure you guys have seen them, of Satchel in Harlem. And he's walking the streets of Harlem, and throngs of kids are hanging on to him, <laughs> just wanting to touch it. You know, that's the kind of stardom that these guys had. Now, like I said, they may have been isolated in their own world. But man, you couldn't tell them, you couldn't, you couldn't convince them, number one, that they weren't playing the best baseball being played in the world. Now the world <laughs> said the best baseball being played was in the major leagues. They never believed that. And, and they were. They were stars within their own communities. Awesome. All right. So MH, final thoughts. Mr. Kendrick, thank you for your time, man. You made us feel good tonight, man. So I really appreciate your time. No, man, my pleasure. Absolutely. And I want to uh, thank um, Chris Schneider, who uh, originally put us together, man. And I really want to thank um, you, Prez, to jump in on, man, sharing this stuff. And like I said, you know, I had a chance to to attend the museum. My aunt, you know, she was the one that took me. She lives there. And it's just uh, every time you go in, it, like you said, you get lost and you get uh, immersed in it. So, you know, we want to continue to be supportive. So anytime you have news, definitely shoot us, um, shoot it our way. We'll tag it you know, support it, uh, send it out through our things. And we definitely got to get on these coins things. So just want to thank you again. I want to thank you, the people for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, we drop new shows every Thursday. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel because visual representation matters. All right. Or you can just subscribe to anywhere you listen to podcasts. Stay safe, practice gratitude, and know we're rooting for you. Screaming, all us blacks got a sports and entertainment until we even... Assuming you're rooting for everybody that's black. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Assuming I'm rooting for everybody that's black. Yeah. 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 Assuming I'm rooting for everybody that's black. Smack about two racks on handmade new rags. Assuming I'm rooting for everybody that's black. That's everybody from sports to college class to rap and back.